Well, at this time, we'd like to go ahead and dismiss all the children to follow our team out, and they'll have a special children's ministry. And the ministry for the kids is nightly, and just so you know that, and, um, and so this is really four-year-olds through the sixth grade, and um, as they would uh, be ministered to nightly, I want to encourage also the teenagers that each night before the service, about, uh, about 45 minutes before the service, uh, between that and about 30 minutes, something like that, so um, at 6.15 to 6.30-ish, is when the teens meet. Ben's running that program as well called Cola Wars. It's something that you don't want to miss, I know, especially when it comes to Thursday night. And we've done these through the years. Uh, through the years, I've just, I think of so many different ones we've done and, and different even places here. I think about sometimes we've done it down by the park area or by the river. I think of one stuff over here, or just different ones. And the Lord, ha- how he's used that in different people's lives. And we're praying that the Lord will bring some lost people with that. And, and there would be some that would come to Christ and even add it to the church. Through the years, we've actually met people who have come to Christ, not only through Cola Wars or through the teen outreach, but also people who've um, brought their families, and their families have come to Christ through the nature of the Cola War effort as well, too. So that's kind of another out opportunity for an outreach into the community. And don't forget, especially Wednesday night, as we have a special concert night, and I uh, hope that that'll be a challenge to you as well. Take your Bibles tonight and go to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 14, as we've been focusing in on this passage of Scripture. And what a passage it is. The reality is, as Jesus is speaking this, this is a shocking gospel message. I say this because Jesus would be the greatest evangelist who ever lived. As he preached the gospel, he, he, he preached it clearly. And so often people would misunderstand his message, and yet they thought the Messiah would come to set up his kingdom and rule and reign. And yet he will do that, but not the first time. And he came to, to be a suffering servant, to, to die for the sins of many, as Scripture would teach us. And so here's Jesus uh, really preaching to massive crowds of people. It's the end of, you could say, his ministry here on earth as, as an earthly ministry before he's going to go to the cross. And so he has massive crowds following him. And so we read this. It's Luke chapter 14 and verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall it be seasoned? Um, it, is, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What did he mean by all of this. Actually, as we looked at this closely, we're talking about this, the main theme in this series is this, the theme of this is, is the true cost of real discipleship. What does it mean to be a real follower of Jesus? I think there's a lot of people who claim the name of Christ who are lost as can be, and if they were to die, they would die and not go to heaven, but they would be shocked as they enter hell. The scripture actually is clear. Jesus says, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we profit? Didn't we even do good works? And he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know you. There's no relationship. They knew about Jesus. They could claim the name. They could, they could actually say all the things. There's many people who make these claims. But Jesus wanted to make it very clear as he turns to this lost crowd and he, and he speaks to them. He calls them to full faith. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and you're going, wait a second, what does that mean? And, and really, yesterday morning, we came to the conclusion, he's not saying, go around and hate everybody. 
and hate your parents and hate your kids and hate your, hate your friends and hate, hate those around you, hate your own self. What is he saying, though? Actually, he's using what's called a Hebraism. He was teaching people the reality is you should so love me supremely that any other love in comparison is like hatred. But you're not supposed to hate anybody. I mean, so the truth is, is, is that you love people, but you just love him that much more. So we came to the conclusion, really after the first, the first message was simply this, a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who loves Christ supremely. Anything short of that is simply idolatry. And he's calling you to forsake every idol of human relationship for the one true God. As you look at this closely, we, we saw that one, and we realized the truth is, if anyone really does this, if anyone's saying, I don't want my sin, I want the Savior to rescue me, the truth is, what happens to that person? Actually, for the first time, you could say this, the love of God is shed abroad in their heart. Now they're free to love people because they actually have God's love within them because they have the Spirit of God who has saved them. As you consider this, it's amazing to think about. But then we looked at last night, this whole idea of verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. As we looked at this yesterday, we we came to this conclusion, what does it mean to bear the cross? Actually, cross-bearing is a sign of total submission to the higher authority. As Jesus even submitted to the highest authority of God, you could say, and yet as God in human flesh, he's submitting even to the Roman authority, therefore he was doing this on purpose, yet anybody who would come to Christ needs to submit to the higher authority. If you're saying, I want Jesus to save me, but I'm not going to give my life, well, then you're not going to get saved. It doesn't work that way. It's not Jesus sort of kind of rescue me from hell. I don't want to go there, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to submit to you. That, that makes no sense. It's like saying, I want Jesus as my Savior, but I don't want him as my Lord. That doesn't make any sense. Anybody who really comes to Christ is, 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 may not understand everything it entails, but the truth is there's a submission in their heart to the lordship of Jesus. There's a submission to the, to the reality of he's the Savior and I can't save myself and I'm giving my heart and my life to him as my greatest treasure. As you think about this, a cross-bearing is a public display of humiliation. The reality is if you truly come to Christ, you probably will naturally suffer some form of persecution. People will make fun of you because you're a Christian. There's a public style of humiliation for those who bear the cross. Cross-bearing is a willingness to die to self and to follow Christ completely. It's, it's not just partial. No, it's complete. It's that whole idea of dying, of that corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And if it doesn't die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And here's the dilemma. I think there are many people who have prayed prayers and have never come to the point where they've really died to themselves and let Christ live in and through them. Are you seeing this? Because the truth is, apart from that, there is no true spiritual life. I think there's been a disservice to many people for many years, and people are dying and going to hell because people have been told, just pray this and get you there. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. As you consider this even further, though, tonight as we look at this whole idea of really what it means to be a true follower of Jesus Christ, we, again, we came to this last night that a genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who surrenders to Christ fully, not just a one-time surrender, but actually that one-time surrender, initially it begins, but it's a constant day-by-day surrender, bearing the cross and taking up your cross daily and following him. That's a serious deal for those of us who are true believers, and so we realize that, again, we surrender to Christ fully, and we constantly surrender. Isn't this interesting? Have you noticed the nuances between verse 26 and verse 27, even in this passage? Because the nuance is this. He's calling people to come to him, and yet verse 27, he doesn't say, come to me. He says, come after me. And here's the truth. Anybody who truly comes to Jesus will naturally come after Jesus. For a person to say, I get saved, but then for the rest of their life, they're backslidden, that, that doesn't make any sense, actually. And I think we will see this even more tonight as we look at this passage. Now, tonight, I love it because it's illustrations. And now I say this because as a preacher, we know this. I can preach to you and give you serious doctrine and go through truth after truth, and, you'll, and, and eventually what happens is you, you see people, you're starting to lose people, and then you bring in an illustration, and it is amazing how, how people perk up, they, their head lifts up, they, they kind of key in with the illustration because illustrations are helpful, and Jesus is using two illustrations. So we begin tonight as we consider this one. Here's the theme tonight. So if you're here tonight for the first time, 
then it's the main theme. If you're not here for the first time and you were here yesterday, then it's point number three. Okay, but here we go. Ready? A genuine disciple of Jesus is a person who counts the cost carefully. They think. They use their brain. May God help us use our brains tonight. Father, let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we are so thankful for who you are. You are so kind to us to deliver your word to us. And, and yet, God, here we are. We get to hear the preached scriptures. Lord, in many countries, if this were to happen this evening, the same place or same message in another area of the world, we could all be killed for this. So we are, we are so privileged, and with so often we count it for granted too. We take it for granted. So I pray, God, tonight as we hear the message that you would give us ears to hear, that, Lord, everyone in the room that hears the word, that, Lord, you would stir them in a real way. God, thank you so much for what you're going to do. Lord, if there's someone lost, please, by your grace, bring them to a saving knowledge of Christ. May they humble themselves in true repentance and faith. And God, thank you for what you're going to do tonight. Empower me now. Use this message for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. As we look at this passage tonight, we consider the idea of thinking because Jesus wants you to think, to use your brain. Now, can I remind you, there are, there are religions out there that say, don't use your brain. Don't think, you know, mm, you know, whatever. But, but no, here's Jesus saying, no, actually think. And Scripture tells us this. Remember Philippians says, whatsoever things are true and honest and just and lovely, if there be virtue, praise, think on these things. So biblical Christianity is a call to think, to use your brain. That's what I love when I talk to people so often. They say, well, Jeremy, I don't believe the Bible. You know, I, I believe actually in science. And I'm thinking... So do I, actually. You want to talk science a little bit? Because I love to do that with people that, that really claim to be really brilliantly pe brilliant people. But when it comes down to it, the truth is they're willingly ignoring the reality of a God. And they do this because if they can somehow in their mind say that God doesn't exist, then they don't have to submit to him. And so the reality is they're, they're naturally and purposely suppressing this. The truth is you look around and you see there's, there's no way with this intelligent design, there's no intelligent designer. This did not happen by chance. You look at this, though, and reality is not everyone thinks. I, I, my, my heart races to this whole idea of considering the cost, and I, and I, my, I go to a, quite a few years ago at Northland Camp. I, I think about as we began, we would get up there in the summer, and, and we're getting ready to have a whole summer ministry where we're ministering to people and from, from children to teens to families. And, um, and I remember at one point in time getting there early enough that I, I go, and, and it was a couple days before the whole thing was going to kind of get together and everyone, the staff coming together, and I went into the weight room at Northland, and, and I like to work out a little bit if I can, and so I was working out, and when I went in there, I, I met a guy who was, who was from South Carolina, where I'm from. And uh, we didn't know each other beforehand, and, and I meet this guy, and he's, and he's a teenager. He's, he's probably, I think, uh, 16, 17 years old, and uh, he came to, to work at camp, and, and yet it was prior before everyone came, and I, as he began to talk to me right away, I knew there is no way this guy is going to be counseling anybody because he needed counsel, okay? I mean, I, I mean, he was revealing this as I'm talking to him in just a normal fashion. I realized, again, too, we, we would always have people that would come that would work at camp that we would call projects. Now, don't get me wrong, everybody is a project, okay? We're all projects. But there's a point where you're going, this guy's counseling no one because he needs counsel, okay? And yet, as he's there, I'm talking to him, and we're becoming friends. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed his, his fellowship and, and friendship even that way, too. And then the next night, when I go in there, again, this is the day now before the camp staff was coming in, and I'm working out again, and I see him. He comes up, and he says, hey, Jeremy, he says, Oh, well, I'm going home. I said, going home? What are you talking about? All the staff kind of comes in later today, you know, this evening. They're going to keep coming in tomorrow. And then staff training begins. we got like two weeks of training. And now you see, what do you, what do you mean? And then camp all starts. I mean, what are you talking about leaving? He said, well, my girlfriend's pregnant. At least I think she is. And, and uh, so because of that, the truth is I need to go back. And, you know, we, we're going to get married and those kind of things like, you know, and, and um. And he's looking at me, and I'm not like, yeah, I, I'm kind of just looking at him. 
And, um, and so to kind of justify it even more, he says, well, you know, we, we did what we did because we love each other. And I uh, said, um, actually, that's not true. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, well, if you really loved her, you would never have violated her purity. That makes no sense. That's not love. That's called lust. I began to describe that with him. He wasn't mad at me. Actually, he listened. And, um, but I said, but now that you are going back and you're going to get married, I guess you got to be prepared for those things, don't you? I said, so the truth is, is are you ready to get married? Because you, you've got this wedding thing that can be pretty expensive. He goes, so I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking about, you know, just having a wedding photographer or a wedding cake and she's got a dress and all this stuff. I said, that's, that can be pretty expensive. Oh, well, we're, we're going to do a real like easy kind of, you know, like the justice of the peace. Oh, that, that'd be memorable. Um, and uh, okay, well, have you guys thought about where you're going to live? Um, I, I think we're going to live with my mom. Does she know that? Well, no, but, you know, I will, well, let me help you out. Let me give you some biblical counsel. Let me, this, will, this will be helpful. Actually, the Bible teaches when, when, it, when, it, when people get married, you know, you leave your father and your mother and you cleave to your wife, your spouse, and you become one. So the reality is there's, there's, a, there's a good thing to actually get out of the home as you are starting your life together as a married couple and to not live at home. That would actually be a wise counsel and helpful for you. And um, so let's just say this. Here you are in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, at the time, this is years ago, at the time you can, you can get a one-bedroom apartment that's somewhere around $400. And he goes, $400? I said, yeah, $400 a month. And um, and uh, for one bedroom. And, and then I said, and the truth is, it's not just that. You've got you, you, you to pay utilities. And he goes, utilities? What's that? I said, well, actually, you don't just get, like, free electricity or water or the gas, heat or whatever. I mean, you've got to pay for all that. So why don't you add a couple hundred dollars more per month? And he's going, whoa, you know, that's kind of a serious deal. And I said, do you guys have a vehicle? He goes, well, no, but I think we can just use my mom's car. Well, wait a second. Okay, again, does your mom know this? Does she have multiple vehicles? No, she has only one. Okay, so um, and does she work? Yes. Okay, you, you can't really use your mom's car. Okay, so you guys need your own vehicle, so maybe you can buy a beater of some sort, I don't know, $500 to $1,000, and hopefully it's going to run, you know, and, and then you got to have insurance on that and those kind of things as well. And he's, he's just looking at me like, whoa, you know. And then I said, and also having a baby is kind of an expensive thing. I mean, the truth is, is, you know, I think about, a you know, here's one of our kids who was born and we had health insurance and we had to pay a $4,500 deductible. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, $4,500 deductible. And then there wasn't really complications, but there's things that they didn't get paid. And so when it was all said and done, it was like six to eight grand maybe that for a baby to be born. And, and um, so I don't know if you've really considered any of that. Or, or the other side of it, too, is even when a baby's born, you know, they, they have to be fed. And how are you going to, how's that going to work, you know, with you guys? And, and what about diapers and all that kind of, I mean, everything that goes along with it. So this is like, it's an expensive thing to have a baby and stuff, too. And he's just looking at me. And then I asked this question. I said, and do you have a job anywhere lined up? He goes, no. That night he walked away from the weight room really slow, like he had worked out really hard, but he hadn't. And he, I said, well, these are all things you need to think about. I mean, this is life. Isn't it interesting? We live in a world where people don't think. They don't use their brains. They just kind of go on a whim, and they, they, they think that somehow you're just going to make it that way. You need to think. Jesus says, think, count the cost. Now, let's look at this closely. Because when we look at this, he goes into these two illustrations right from the beginning. Verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And he said, okay, so Jeremy, what, what does this all mean? Okay, so here we go. Ready? In that culture, the culture was called a shame-based society. Here's what that means. That means anything you did within the culture, you better be very, very careful what you do because you could shame yourself, you could shame your family, everything's tight-knit. I say this because no one drove 20 minutes to go to church. You know why? Because nobody drove. They all lived tight 
close in whatever you did, you were careful. You didn't want to shame your name or your family's name, and so you were careful with what you did. And then to build this structure, here's a person who just on a whim thinks, man, it's a tower of some sort. Now, wait, whether it was a, a tower to kind of watch to see if the enemy would come in or whether to oversee the fields, the idea here is a person in just sheer emotion, yeah, I want to build that, never really considering the cost. And now all of a sudden they begin to start the structure and the structure gets halfway built and they can't finish it and everybody in the community mocks. It's a mockery now. Now we could consider that in our own world too. The truth would be is if all of a sudden beside you there's an open lot and and then then pretty soon all of a sudden the ground gets to be, be kind of dug and they begin to build the foundation, they begin to work the frames a little bit too. Then all of a sudden it stops and you're thinking, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, it's the springtime. I mean, they should be building a lot now, you know? And and all the dirt's moved and everything's, but it's just this big heaping kind of thing and nothing's together and then you realize nothing happens and it's months upon months and you start realizing, wait a second, They've just devalued my property. That's shameful, and that would probably make you pretty upset. Not only that, as I think about this, I, I'll bring somebody in as an illustration. Uh, who could I pick on? Bryce. Yeah. Bryce, how old are you now? He's 50. That's perfect. Okay, so here we go. Okay, I'll pick on Bryce. He's my, he's my nephew, so I can do that. So anyway, so let's say Bryce one day is like, I am so sick of living in my house, you know, with my parents and my sisters, you know, he's kind of, you know, and so he says, and, I, and you know, I want my own place now. I'm kind of getting to the age, you know, and, I, and so he's like, forget this dump, you know, I'm, I'm going to, so he goes to the bank, and so as he goes to the bank, he, he comes into the bank, and they say, can we help you? And he says, yeah, I'd like to talk to someone about getting a loan. And they say, okay, uh, sure, he kind of looks a little young, but uh, c- come on in, you know, and, and uh, we'll talk, have you talked to a loan officer? And he's like, that's not like a police officer or anything, is it? No, 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 that's someone who gives you the money. Okay, okay, sure. And so he goes in, sits down, and, and then he says this. He says, I would like to, to get a loan, and all I want is $1.2 million. He says, the truth is, is I, I want to I build a house, and I don't want a real dumpy place. I've been watching television a little bit and just kind of seeing some of the pretty amazing houses that are there, and I, you know, and the HDTV kind of stuff. And I'm like, and I, so I see these, and, and, it comes, and I don't want to go extravagant. Some of these are millions of dollars, but all I want is something, you know, that's, that would be adequate for me at this point in my life. And so just $1.2 million, I think, will do the trick, and that's, that's all I need. And they, they, look at, they look at Bryce, and they say, well, um, are your parents wealthy? Uh, no, you know, that's why I want to do this. Okay, well, um, uh, do your parents have, I mean, do they have some kind of account here? No. Um, do you have an account here? No. What do you think? He said, and, then, and then Bryce says, I just want my $1.2 So what's taking you guys so long? What would the loan officer say to Bryce? If he were really nice, he might just say, get out. Bryce's like, what would I say? What do I do? Now, Bryce wouldn't do this, okay, so I'm just picking on him. But, but the truth is that when Bryce would leave, okay, here's what would happen. Within the bank, as he left, what would the loan officer say to all the people in the bank at some point during the day? They would, he would come to me and say, you won't believe what just happened. This 15-year-old kid came to me and he was, he was so wanting to have a loan for $1.2 Like, we just give out the money or something. It would be a mockery. If the guy was in the banking industry for the rest of his life, the truth is, when anyone would tell a story at, like, a party, he would tell a story, too. And he would bring up Bryce. He would say, this kid ain't Bryce. And he would, and he would mock this. It would be a sense of mockery. This is the same point here. The idea is, here's somebody who, on emotion, who never considers the cost, They said, I'm going to build this, and then they start to build, and they don't have the money to complete it. It's so shameful. It's going to be a mockery. What does this mean? What is Jesus teaching here when it comes to the gospel? Here's what he's teaching. Number one tonight, emotional decisions for Christ are shameful decisions. If it's surely based on emotion, emotions come and they go. They're shameful, though. The idea is it doesn't last. It's, it's like the idea of a person who, who, within the emotion of a service, just decides to do this, but then the emotion wears off and their faith wears off. It doesn't work that way if they're really in faith. Actually, even the book of Job she teaches us this, that you may fall down, but true faith won't ultimately fall away. Not if it's real faith. But how many people emotionally have been caught up in the emotional decisions of the day? I think about this and go, there's a lot of people who've done this. 
Now I say this, and I'll, I'll be honest this way, okay? Let's, 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 pull, let's pull the crowd for a minute, okay? How many of you, that when you got saved, you, you look back on you go, man, Jerry, I really believe I've been truly born again and truly saved. And for you, there was emotion. In other words, that night when you got saved, maybe there were tears, but there was definitely some serious emotion going on the night that you got saved or the day that you got saved. How many of you that would say, yes, Jeremy, that happened to me? Okay, all right, good stuff. And you put your hands down. Now, how many would say this, though? I got saved, and there's no doubt about that. I've repented. I've trusted in Christ as my Lord and Savior. But the day I trusted Christ, there wasn't a lot of emotion. But there's evident fruit that I have been truly born again. But there wasn't a lot of emotion involved. Is anyone like that? Would you just slip your hand up if that's true of you? Okay, yeah. So it's it's almost like half the crowd. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm saying this because if it's only emotion, emotions come and go. But the truth is, is, is there's, it's more than just emotions. Think of it this way. If it's an emotional decision for Christ, they will be shameful because, again, the emotions will come and go. If it's only intellectual, intellectual faith doesn't save you either. There are people who can give you all the right answers. There are some of you in this room who can totally give me the right answers, but when it comes to authentic faith, you don't have it. In other words, even the Bible says the demons believe in Jesus and they tremble. Some of you don't tremble at Jesus at all. For you, it's just kind of a thing you've grown up with and you can tell the right answers and you can say Jesus and Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead, but he doesn't affect you. The demons believe in Jesus, they even tremble, but they're not going to heaven. That's why it's not just a, an intellectual or, or a mental ascent in, in Jesus. So the truth is, it's with the heart, it's with the mind, it's with the will, it's all of you saying, I don't want my sin, I want Christ to rescue me. Now I say this because it brings us to the next illustration. The next illustration is an illustration about war. As you look at this closely, we see this. He says in, in, in actually verse 31, or what king? Now, as he says this, he's drawing everybody into the crowd to to have you think that you're a king. So if you're here tonight and you're a guy, guess what? You're a king. That's pretty sweet, huh? Or if you're a if you're a girl tonight, guess what you are? You're a queen. Okay, so here you are, sir, you've got your kingdom, or maybe here you are, ma'am, you've got your queendom. I mean, you've but let's just imagine for just a minute, that's you. You are a king or a queen, and you rule, you have a kingdom. That's kind of cool, okay? So wait, go even further. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with, with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So now you're thinking for a minute. Okay, um, you've got 10,000 troops, but they have 20,000 troops. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and I'm going to tell you, stop thinking this way, okay? Because I know what some of you are thinking. Here's what you're going. You're going, well, it doesn't matter, really matter, Jeremy. If they've got 20,000, I've got a nuke. You know what I mean? I can... And they're all gone, you know? No, you have no nuke. You have no machine gun. You, you have nothing. All you have is a sword and a shield. That's all they have, let's just say, okay? So, so you're going to go against them in battle. Now, this group has actually battled and killed and wiped out, you could say, kingdoms along the way. So as you begin to consider this, you're going, well, this is a pretty serious thing. And then you look on a map and you realize, wait, they're kind of heading my direction. I mean, like, this could not, I mean, they've got double the amount of troops and, and they're going to kill us. Now, to think about how sober this would make you think, if you're really thinking, some of you would, for the first time would say, wait a second, that means they're going to kill my family. For me, that's saying that they're going to kill my, my spouse, they're going to kill my wife. They're going to kill my kids. They're going to kill my friends and the people in the community. They're going to wipe them out. Wait a second here. This is so serious. They're not here yet. So here's what we'll do. Let's go. Let's send a group of people as a delegation, and let's, let's ask, what are your conditions of peace? So we go there before them. We've got goods even. We come humbly. We're waving like the white flag, and we drop before them, fearful of our own life, even at that point in time, but saying, listen, we know you're greater. We know you're stronger. We know you're going to wipe us out, but what are your conditions of peace? Because whatever they are, I'll meet them. That means this. If I've got to work for you for the rest of my life and be, in a sense, your slave and just do this, but you don't kill my family then I'll do that. Please don't kill my family and other people. I just, what are your conditions of peace? I want to meet them. 
Now, when you consider this, what's going on here? You could say, number two, wise decisions are humble. They're actually thoughtful. They're serious. Think about this humility. You, you go, you send a delegation. They're not there yet. You drop before them. What are the conditions of peace? They're so serious and that they're so thoughtful that you're going there to seek to meet those, those, those conditions. Now, as you consider this for a minute, this is what a real decision for Christ is like. It's a person who's considered the cost. As you even think about this too, you could say again, wise decisions, they are humble, thoughtful, and serious, but wait a second, consider this even in a spiritual realm. Let me ask you a question. Who is the greatest king of kings and lord of lords? Who's that? Jesus. Good job. It's another Jesus answer. Okay, so you got it. Good job, Kalea. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kidding. That's what I said to my daughter. But anyway, okay, so yeah, Jesus is the answer, okay? He will come one day back, and he will come, and he will rule and reign. He will conquer, actually, at the end when he comes back. You, you want to be, if a person is saved during the tribulation, they want to be left behind, actually, at that point in time. I know we always kind of get it reversed. We're thinking of the rapture, maybe, but the reality is this. At that point, in the end, you read it in Matthew, the truth is when Jesus comes back, those people who are taken away, they're taken away to judgment. You don't want to be that. That's eternal judgment. And yet those are all the lost people. And what will Jesus do? He comes in as a slaughtering, as a conquering king who is so holy and righteous, he doesn't want any sin in his presence, and he wipes it out. He wipes it out, and he wipes them out, you could say. This is serious. That means this. If you're here tonight, and you're not in Christ, God has something called wrath. It is called righteous anger that he has towards sin and even towards sinners. This is so serious that you should be so serious. Okay, wait a second. He has not come yet. So because he has not come yet, what are his conditions of peace? I want to meet them. And can I just tell you, here's the truth. He's already told you the conditions of peace. He's already said you must repent and believe the gospel. You must, repentance and faith is where it is. He's already told us this. And if you meet those conditions, the truth is you'll be rescued by God. You go from being his enemy to becoming his friend. So what, are the, what is he teaching here? Wise decisions are humble, they're thoughtful, they're serious. Now take your Bible. I want you to do this, okay? So now you've been sitting for a minute. Take your Bible, though, and move, and move your scriptures to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, let's look at verse 18. This is a passage where Jesus is speaking to a man we call the rich, young ruler. He's rich. That's kind of cool. How many of you would think, man, that's kinda, that'd be kind of awesome to be rich? Would you slip your hand up? Amen. That'd be kind of cool. Okay. About three of you. And uh, the rest, rest of you are like, no, I want to be poor. Okay. No, he's rich. Okay, rich. And he's young. Okay, that's kind of cool. What does that mean? Actually, this would show us within the passage here, this guy is between probably 30 and 40. Because if he's a ruler, he's got to be at least 30 years old in that condition, in that day and age. I mean, the reality is that's when they would start really in a sense of having some real form of leadership. And so between 30 and 40, that's where he probably is. He's rich. He's young. And he's a ruler. So he's got got influence. He's got power. He has everything. He's got the American dream. Man, that's what everyone really wants, huh? Except for he comes to Jesus and he knows he's missing something. So as we look at this closely, let's look at this. In verse 18, it says, and a ruler asked him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Man, that, that is awesome. I mean, when, you, when I think about that, I go, that's, that's pretty crazy. I mean, okay, that's like someone coming up and knocking on my trailer door and saying, hey, can you tell me how to get saved? I mean, that, that's different than saying, hey, can you tell me how to get to rise and roll? I can tell you, actually, today I got to go there, and that was really awesome. I'm like, Mishawaka is like, awesome. I got rise and roll. Okay. Um, but far better than rise and roll. If someone were to knock on my door and say, can you tell me how to get saved? I would say, yeah, uh, come on in. I mean, I'll, let's talk. I mean, I want to show you this. This is a, that's a, And this guy is not trying to trick Jesus. That's, that's not what's going on. There's nothing trickery about this. Here's a guy humbly. Now, normally, the Pharisees and the religious crowd, that was their job. They were trying to trick Jesus, but not 
here. So he comes before Jesus, and sure enough, he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do you realize within their culture, no one was called good naturally? That was reserved for God. So for you to say, good teacher, you're saying, I'm a God-like teacher, and that again is reserved for God. He didn't rebuke the guy. He didn't say, don't you ever do that. That's for God. He's saying that is reserved for God. And he leaves him there. Why? Because he's teaching him. Because he's God. He doesn't rebuke him there. Okay, you call me this, you're close, you're understanding. Now he goes further. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. What? What what are you saying, Jesus? I mean, at first glance, we all should be going, um, uh, okay, that is not how you get saved, okay? You are not saved by your good works. I mean, the Bible even says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us. I mean, you remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace that you're saved through faith, it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would boast. I mean, hello. So Jesus, what are you saying? You know the commandments, and let's look at the commandments. What is he saying? Now, he, he's not exhaustive in the list either. He, he, he gives you some of them that are dealing with humankind. So as he says this, it's interesting that he, he would bring this up. And, and why would he say, look at the commandments? But actually, this is so masterful. You know why? Because the Bible even teaches us this. In the book of Galatians, that the law is the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. Actually, Paul said this in Romans 7, verse 7. He said, is the law sin? No, not at all. But I would not have known sin except by the law because the law said you shouldn't covet, and I realize how much I covet and lust. And so he's saying, actually, the law shows us our sin and shows us that God is holy. So this is true. When you begin to look at the law close to, really face-to-face, when you come face-to-face with it, and you really consider it in a real way, what does it do? It actually brings conviction to the person to show them there's a need for the Savior. Apart from this, people don't get saved. I wonder if sometimes we're presenting the gospel in the wrong way. Here's Jesus who maybe in a modern day evangelism course in a Christian college might fail. Or maybe Jesus gets it right and we're doing it wrong. Are you catching this? So we look closer, and so he brings up the commands. Now, as he brings up the commands, the man responds in verse 21. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now, think about this for a minute. For the most part, he is saying the truth. He's not trying to trick Jesus. There's nothing in the passage that teaches us that somehow this guy is trying to be deceptive towards Jesus. He really is saying this. Now, when you consider this, okay, he's just heard this. You should not, thou do not commit adultery. And he's thinking, I don't cheat on my wife. I love my wife. Um, do not murder. <clears throat> well, I haven't killed anybody. <laughs> um, do not steal. Honestly, I, I try to be, be, be wise and honest in my business dealings. I mean, um, do not, com- do, do not um, bear false witness. I, I mean, no, I don't try to slander anyone. I don't try to lie. I try to tell the truth. I mean, and... Honor your father and mother. Okay, well, I mean, I do. I love my parents. I mean, really, from my youth, I've, I've, see, I've sought to keep those. I think the guy's being really honest with himself, but he's not really seeing the commands as he should. Now, I say this. I mean, we look at this. At first glance, you should not commit adultery. The truth is Jesus even said this. You should never commit adultery. But then he went on to say this. If you even look at somebody and you have immoral thoughts, you've committed adultery already in your heart. Now, wait a second. The number one commodity on the Internet is porn. 
The immorality of our culture is so prevalent. I mean, the reality is it's through the music of our world naturally. They talk about love all the time. They don't know love. They talk about, they really are speaking, singing about lust. I mean, if you start looking at what Bible love is, you go, that's nothing to do with that. And actually movies, it's like, why in the, why in the world in our entertainment industry is it so immoral, so consistently? And, and the truth is, if we're not careful, we buy into all this. But immorality, even the Bible says, comes from the heart. I mean, who in this room has never had a dirty thought ever? Reality is everybody in this room is guilty. You look even further and you go, okay, so, so the idea of adultery, but that's not just the, the only thing that he says here. The truth is he says you should not murder. Now, we learned this yesterday morning. If you have hatred in your heart, you're like a murderer. I mean, who has never had any hatred ever? The truth is we all have gotten angry. We've said, I hate you maybe to somebody. This is, this is who we are. And yet we've, we've had, this is where it begins. It begins from anger from the heart. We've all been angry from the heart. Wait a second, do not steal. Every last one of us has stolen in some way. I mean, you, you may steal by robbing from God in the sense that God gives you all the money and you never give anything back. And the reality is it's all his in the first place. There's, there's the truth of that. that, that it may be that you, you call it five-finger discount and you actually take something. Or maybe you cheat on your taxes. Or maybe you don't work hard. I say this because if you're an employee and you've got, another, you got, you got somebody who's working for you and they give you about 50% of their effort while they work for you, what are they doing for, to you? They are stealing from your company. That means you're supposed to always work hard. Wait, do not steal? Do not bear false witness? No lying ever or slandering? I mean, have you ever told a lie? Yeah, I mean, the tr- yes. I mean, honor your father and your mother? Did you... Did you ever dishonor your father and your mother growing up? Every last one of us are guilty. I mean, we look at this, and yet the guy's looking at it in, a, in kind of a simple way. And so he says, I mean, really, for the most part, I've kind of kept these. But he's not really thinking about these in the real way. So when he hears this, here's what happens. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Here's what it is. Next two words. Sell all. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, what if I told you that? Hey, we got this ministry thing going on, you know, we got to, so here's what you need to do. Liquidate everything you got, give it all to the poor, and you come, you join our team, follow me. You'd be like, ah, Jeremy, uh, Lord bless you, you know, pat me on the back, you know, just kind of got other things I'm doing, okay. But this is not anybody saying this. This is Jesus himself. This is Messiah. This is God in human flesh. He's saying, sell it all, liquidate it all, give it to the poor, you'll have great treasure in heaven and follow me. What should the guy have done? He should have said, yes, no problem, and I'll sell it all. I give it to the poor, and I'm following you, Jesus, because you're calling me, and I'm following. I'm obeying. But no, he doesn't do that. Actually, he doesn't. It says this in verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said this, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He actually says this in the scriptures right in front of me, exclamation. How difficult it is for those who've got a lot of money to enter the kingdom of God, he says to this man. And he's not saying this in anger or mad. He's saying this in reality. Jesus is even sad for him, has compassion for this person as he's saying this. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, he says, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What? I mean, okay, now some have said this. Well, I mean, Jeremy, you know, you know what the eye of the needle is, don't you? I mean, see... In the wall of Jerusalem, there's this, there's this gate. It's called the needle's eye, you know. And so what would happen is this, uh, in order for the camels to get through, because it's so little, they'd have to kind of get down and kind of work their way through to, to, in order to make their way through. So it kind of shows some humility a little bit there. That's kind of what it's doing. But, uh, 
No, it can't be that. You know why? Because the needle's eye wasn't even invented till some 300 AD. And so the truth is there's no way he's talking about that. So that's made up by somebody else in their kind of creative form in a commentary of some sort. But wait a second. Let me just tell you this. It can't be that. And actually, when the guy responds, we know it's not that because the guy, as they, as they hear this, what do, what's the response? Actually, it says this. For those who heard it in verse 26 said, then who can be saved? What are they saying? That's impossible. Then who can get saved then? Do you realize in a culture nearby, they would use, they would use an animal called an elephant, and they would say, it's so impossible. Here's what they would say. It's like an elephant that would go through the eye of a needle, which means that's impossible. <laughs> So what did they have? They had their largest animal was the camel. And so guess what they said? They said something similar to the other culture. Hey, you know what? When they're going to say something's impossible, that's so impossible. That's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the whole point is, that's impossible. It's impossible for rich people to be saved. As you look at this closely, it's interesting because who then can be saved? Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter with, with a, with, with, said this, he said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. We've, we've left it all and followed you, Peter says. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this, in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter, you're right, and you're unbelievably blessed for it. <clears throat> now, here's the, here's the point. Actually, I heard this statistics, actually, it was a number of years ago it came out. Here's what it was. If you make a combined household income of 10 grand a year or more, you're in the top 84th percentile in the world. That means if you're here tonight and you're on welfare, you are really rich compared to the rest of the world. Actually, if you make $44,000 a year or more, according to the world standard, you're in the top 99th percentile in the world. You know what I'm looking at tonight? I'm looking at a bunch of rich people. How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. You know why? Because it's so simple to trust in your riches. It's so easy to look to yourself that somehow you're okay. And this is the whole point. You're self-sufficient. There's no real need. And yet maybe this is one of our problems within our world today. It's impossible for rich people to be saved. But not, but not apart from God. Because with God, he says, all things are possible. So you look at this and go, okay, that's, that's good news that God makes it possible for even rich people to be saved. So what is he doing here? Okay, here's this man who is trusting in his wealth. Okay, really, for the first time, what are you seeing? You're seeing this guy understand the gospel and see himself as a sinner, because here he is realizing he's got all this wealth. If I liquidate it all and I give this and I distribute this to the poor, okay, I'm not going to have any more money. Wait a second. And what is it showing for the first time he's starting to realize this man is an idolater. He loves money. Commandment number 10, you should not, what? Covet. So this guy, maybe for the very first time in his life, now he sees himself as a sinner. See, the truth is, if you never come to grips with your own sin, you will never be saved. This man, he's, he walks away from Jesus, but honestly, think of it this way. This is the kindness of Jesus. This man is now one step closer to truly getting saved because for the first time in his life, now he truly sees himself as an idolater and as a sinner. He needs 
to be rescued. He walks away convicted. I think later he gets saved. I don't know. But Jesus takes him one step closer because apart from this conversation with Jesus, he would be lost as can be and he would think he's okay. But this is the kindness. Now, wait a second. I can't stop here. Go to chapter 19 really fast. Okay, look at this. Chapter 19, Jesus, again, he's making his way to to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. That's where he's making his way. But he enters Jericho. And as he enters Jericho in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says he entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Remember this growing up? Hey, Zacchaeus, what was he? He was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. Remember what he did? He climbed up into a sycamore tree. Why? For the Lord he wanted to see. But then as the Savior passed that way, what did Jesus do? He, he looked up in the tree, and what did, he, what did he say? He said, Zacchaeus, you come down. Why? For I'm going to your house today. Remember that song? Okay, actually, it's pretty biblical because here it is, okay? Verse, verse 2, here he is, Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. How does a tax collector make their money? Do you remember this? Here's what they would do. They would actually, for one thing, they would sell their countrymen, they would sell, they would, they would sell their souls to Rome, actually. They, they're like, okay, Rome's now in charge, and so they're going to collect taxes. So, sure, I'll work for you, Rome, okay? And now here's what they would do. In order to make serious cash when you were a tax collector is you had to gouge people. You would go to the person and say, hey, uh, the government says you owe this amount of money. Now, anything you collected over and above what the Romans said, that money was yours. And so the way they would make their money was they would gouge all of their countrymen for the purpose of making themselves wealthy, beyond belief. And sure, they would say, well, that seems so high. Yeah, but that's what they're saying. That's what you got to give. And they would take the money and they were rich. So here's the guy. He's not just a tax collector. He is the chief of tax collectors. That means this. He is like the one in charge of it all. This guy is filthy rich by by actually hacking his own countrymen and stealing from his own countrymen. So he's rich. He's Zacchaeus. In verse 3, it says, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. He's a wee little man. So what does he do? He ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for for I must stay at your house today. And what did Zacchaeus do? He goes, oh, stink. Why? Why my house? I mean, I'm not even ready. I didn't get anything prepared. You know, why are you going to my house? No, actually, he didn't respond that way at all. Look in verse 6. It says, so he hurried and came down, and notice this, and received him joyfully. He is not sorrowfully going, oh, Jesus is coming. I guess I got to submit to him. No, he is so excited that Jesus is coming to his house. He receives him joyfully. Now watch this. In verse 7, and when they saw it, who's they? This is the religious crowd. When they saw it, they all grumbled and said this. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. What are they saying? The religious crowd is saying this. If he were of God, he would be coming to my house. He is not of God. Look who he hangs out with, sinful people. That is not the Messiah. Religious hypocrites. And Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, listen to what he says. Behold, Lord, for Zacchaeus to call him Lord, what does that mean? He's saying, He's saying, Jesus, you are supreme and I am like a subject to you. You are the master and I'm like your slave. That is his cry out to him. Lord, and then as he says this, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Okay, what? He says, from, Jesus never said, give half your goods to the poor and do all this. No, here's this man who repented, who in his own heart said, I don't care about this. It's not about money anymore. It's all about the Messiah. And he's turning to the Messiah. And he just says this to Jesus with joy. I give half of my goods right from this moment to the poor. I just, I liquidate half of it right away. And if I've defrauded anybody in any way, I will repay them four times the amount. Wait a second. 
He's defrauded everybody in every way. That means in the community and in the surrounding area, that, what do you think he's going to be doing? He's paying everyone back four times the amount that he's defrauded them. He has got some serious business to do, but he's joyfully doing this because his heart has repented. He's turned to the Savior. He's not trusting in his wealth. He's trusting in Jesus. Actually, the scripture, Jesus even tells us this because as we see this, he says, half the goods I give. If I've restored, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, look at verse 9. He said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Some of you have never seen yourself as lost. So guess what? You'll never be saved. Until you find that you are so destitute in your own heart, and if he doesn't wash me, I won't make it. This is so different than, hey, you should pray this prayer. You need Jesus to save you, don't you? Your mommy and daddy are going to heaven. Don't you want to be with mommy and daddy? Do you not realize this, and I'll, I'll kind of help out maybe a little bit in a sense, but okay, so I, I worked at this camp, Pioneer Village. Um, 120 kids a week. Uh, almost 15 years in the summer. That, that's crazy. So that's a lot of kids, huh? You know what I tell the staff? I tell the staff this, do you realize I can get any kid, I could get any kid through manipulative abilities to repray the sinner's prayer. I know I could. You don't want to go down there, do you? Let me tell you the screams from hell. I mean, you, you could manipulate a kid in such a way. And do you realize that kids are pleasers? Have you figured that one out yet? I mean, they, so they, they do whatever, like, you kind of tell them to do in a sense. I mean, if you're a pretty strong leader, they'll follow that. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and wait a second, and I'm telling them this on purpose to our staff to say, wait a second, I could do this, but that's not salvation. And then these kids would die and go to hell? Wait a second. We need to make this so clear that they don't miss it, but the reality is we can't save anybody. So what do you do? You present the good news, but we better be careful that we don't manipulate any kid into praying a prayer that somehow walks away thinking they're on their way to heaven, and they're not on their way to heaven. And how many kids think that with no fruit of any of Jesus in their life? I think of a team member years ago. We've had about 30 team members that travel with us. I think of one that came with us at one point, and she said to me, well, Jeremy, I got saved when I was three, and I never doubted it. Well, we hung out with her for at least a semester of three months, and I told her, well, we doubt it for you. This girl was so stinking talented, she could, she could do all kinds of stuff. I mean, she really was an amazingly talented person. But the more you hung out with her, you never saw Jesus in her at all. She knew all the right answers. My question is, I'm not saying a kid can't get saved. Obviously, if I work in children's ministry, I, I would think there's a reason for it. But I am saying this, if we're not careful... No, here's a little kid who has never considered the cost. And we just tell him, do this. And so here's grandma being really nice, and she loves it. She wants to see her. Don't you want to see your grandkid come to Christ? And so grandma's like, you know, and, and you need Jesus to save you. Okay, grandma. And, and, you know, and so just pray this prayer after me. Okay, grandma. And dear Lord Jesus, dear Jesus, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And they, and they do this. And then at the end, they say, grandma, can I have another cookie? And oh, yes. And oh, praise the Lord. It's amazing. My grandkid got saved today. Did they count the cost? Did they even understand what sin was? Did they really? Because if not, what's going on here? They're not, there's no repentance involved here. It's just kind of adding Jesus to your life, kind of like a Hindu, adding another God. This is so serious. Actually, even in our kids' program, do you know what we do? On purpose, when a kid starts to be inquisitive and maybe responds to a gospel message, we might actually, even at that point, we, we, we'd say, hey, okay, let's go talk. And we'll sit down and talk. Have you ever been saved before? And then we start going through the gospel with that kid. And if the kid's even fidgety, even with that, whether they're not even fidgety at all, at some point what happens is this. Even as the gospel is being presented, as you conclude of the presentation of the gospel, we might even say to that same kid, we'll say, hey, do you realize that right now they're playing a game in there? You want to go back in there and play the game with them? 
And you'll have kids go, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. Okay. And, um, but let me ask you this question before you go in there, because that's good. If you died right now, where would you go, according to the Bible? And the kid will say, um, hell? Yeah, and why would you go there? And the kid says, uh, because I've sinned against God? Yeah. Can I pray for you real quick? And I'll pray for him. And after I pray for him, I'll make it very clear. Hey, I just prayed for you, but that didn't save you. And the truth is, is right now, as you go in there, if, if you, if you, if God starts working your heart and you want to talk to somebody, please come back. Please, please say something to one of us. Two nights later, same kid. Now all of a sudden, give the same option. You know, you present the gospel. Hey, they're playing a game in there. You want to go back in there? The kid goes, no, I don't want to go back in there. I need to get saved right now. What I'm trying to do is this, is for the first time, trying to help people understand, you better count the cost. If there's no counting of the cost, there is no salvation. Are you catching this? Because there's no repentance. And then Jesus doesn't affect you. And then you go and live like a pagan and say, I'm a Christian. Liar. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't obey the things that I say? That's exactly what Jesus said to rebuke the people in the crowd, to say, you are a liar. You do not know me. You have the claim of lordship to me, but you have no, you have no relationship with me. And depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I do not know you. Because when someone truly is saved, God gives you a new desire, new desires to know him, to walk with him, to, to, to live for him. That's, that's of God. You, you want to spend time with it. That's normal. It's not forced. You don't go, oh, man, I've got to read my Bible today. I've got to walk with God. Man, I stink. I've got to go to church tonight. That, that's not, no, actually for a true believer, they're saying, I can't wait. I, want, I need to. You might feel like, man, I don't feel like going, but I'm going to go because I need it. And it's like, it's amazing the difference in, in attitude and heart for those who are in Christ, I wonder if we have done such a disservice to people and we say, well, I know they're saved. I think they're just really backslidden. I mean, how many times has this happened? If someone makes some kind of profession and you say, well, I saw, I mean, they were in tears. And two weeks later, they have nothing to do with the church. They don't want anything to do with the church and they can't stand Jesus and they call themselves an atheist. And we say, oh, they're just having a bad day. They're just kind of backslidden. Why don't we get honest? They never got in the first place. If they really did, they wouldn't go out from among us because they would be of us. I really believe that so often we're, we're, just, not, we're just not getting this. We, but, I, but I prayed with them. This is frightening to me. Now, I'm not telling you don't, don't, don't share the gospel and don't freak out. I would tell our counselors on the other side of things, okay, don't be so freaked out that you can't present the gospel and call people to Christ. But don't be manipulative either. In other words, you better walk in the Spirit, and you better be careful as, as you present the gospel. You can't save anybody, but you can present the gospel to people. But here's Jesus with a rich young ruler, and he's saying, you better count the cost. I mean, if you're really going to get saved, this is what it means to be saved. Now, as I land the plane, okay, and this is the longest message within this series, just so you know. As I look at this, go back to where we started. It's Luke 14. Because as we conclude, you could say this, Jesus is saying this, it is all or nothing. You don't partially repent, you sell all. What you see here is Jesus is making it very clear. I'm not looking for any phony disciples. You better count the cost. As he concludes with this whole idea of even building this this tower or the idea of going to war, we see in Luke 14 and we see in verse 33 as he concludes this segment of this message, he says this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. 
That's verse 33. You look at this and go, wait a second, what is he saying? It's all or nothing. If you don't forsake all that you have. Now, wait a second. For anyone coming to Christ, this is what happens. What if you really repent, you're saying, I don't want my sins. I need the Messiah, and I'm trusting in Christ. And and the truth is, you might not understand everything about every aspect of salvation because you're not going to. Actually, there are theologians who, 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 who work through this all their life, and the glories of salvation, it's like this unbelievably beautiful diamond, and you can see it in different facets and different ways from different angles, but it's unbelievable. Okay, but it's so simple that a child can understand it. But as you begin to look at this, the word forsaketh, the idea of forsaking all, is actually in the present tense. What does that mean? Here's what that means that's not a one time forsaking that you do. But you're constantly forsaking everything that you have for the Messiah. Why? Because he's totally worth it. And the truth is, is when we, when we give it all and we sell it all to the Lord. In other words, now, I'm not telling you, go out and liquidate your bank account, okay? I'm not saying that. And I don't think Jesus is saying that either here. But the truth is, we should be so willing if he says liquidate the bank account, okay, I will do that. I mean, the truth is, whatever he wants is what you want to do. And as you consider this, this whole idea of selling all that you have, and, and, and yet you look at us and go, Really? Tonight, if you have been truly saved, guess what's happened to you? You have become an owner of nothing if you're really saved. But you are now a steward of everything. An owner of nothing, but a steward of everything. Now think about this for just a moment. Some of you left your house tonight and you drove in your vehicle and you came here to church. But what I'm trying to do is this. I'm trying to help you see this, that tonight when you leave here, you'll leave here in God's vehicle and go back to God's house. And the idea is that you would be a wise steward of God's bank accounts and God's stuff. Because you don't own any of it but you're a steward of everything. And you're going to give an account of how you stewarded God's money and God's stuff. So for the true believer, I go, well, I have repented and trusted in Christ. But this says, okay, whose stuff is this? And once again, we say, God, it's all yours. Could you imagine if you really, as a true believer or a person who, who actually loves Christ supremely, you surrender fully, and you consider the cost carefully, and you live that way. What a way to live. This is actually the very core of saving faith and the very core of Christianity. This is where every one of us as true believers should be living right now. But the reality is... Who in this room is living that way? So if you're here tonight as true believers, you know what would happen is if that's not you, you what do you do? It's like last night, you, sur- you, you surrender, <laughs> you submit, you, you once again say, dear God, I give you all. But my fear is tonight too, there are some of you that are in this room and you are lost and you've never been born again. And you might live to be 90, I'll tell people this, you might live to be 90. You're not promised when you're 90 that you'll have any conviction And you're also not promised that you'll make it tomorrow. That's why when God begins to bring the conviction to the guilt of God on your soul for salvation, what should you do? Count the cost and humble yourself in repentance and faith. That's the only wise thing to do. That's why Jesus says, or Paul teaches, today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off, but sell all and and, and joyfully turn to Christ that he may rescue you. May God help us. Let's pray.